Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red after a really long break, man. How are you? I'm good. Happy 2020, man. Yeah. It's a whole new year, a whole new, like so much has happened over the past, what, month since we've been gone. We're in a new year, but but really like everything is sort of the same. It's this weird feeling of deja vu, you know, like, yeah. wait a second, we, we've done a new season before a year ago and we were in the exact same place waiting for cabinet formation. Exactly. And here we are again. Yeah. I mean... Nothing really life-changing happened, although we had like some big news and we apologize to the listeners who were like tweeting at us quite frequently saying, when are you coming back? We just needed a break uh, like everyone does. We really needed a break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're coming back for another third season and uh, it's going to be great. Refreshed, um, energized, ready to go. Bring it on 2020. Yeah, let's do this. So the biggest story, right? Hassan Diab. How did this guy become like, the prime minister designate after yeah, like like literally the week after like our last episode of last season this guy just like comes out of nowhere and he he gets nominated to be the prime minister Hassan Diab became the prime minister de- designate uh, I believe on the 19th of December and, and it was interesting how this happened because it, this is not some consensus candidate which we've had a lot of lately right no this this is sort of just March 8th Hezbollah, Amal, FPM, those guys, right? Yeah. I mean, we were not expecting a March 8th candidate. Uh, neither of us was uh, on the last episode or the one it's before quite a gamble, it. yeah. Mm, it's, it's, I still don't believe it that it's going to happen. But anyway, uh, it's, it is like they're trying to form a government and uh, people are taking it seriously. Everyone's taking it seriously. And uh, so Diab was re- supported by 69 MPs out of 128. So it's just really just over half MPs so it shows how uh, weak his mandate is from the beginning to be honest and uh, and a lot of people uh, did not nominate him or nominated someone else so we have the future and the Lebanese forces and nine other MPs uh, they abstained from from nominating anyone and these nine MPs include uh, Miqati's block uh, they include uh, two the two naughty FPM MPs uh, Shamir Rukuz and Na'mat Frem, who have been kind of like taking their own positioning after the revolution uh, started. And you have Osama Saad, the independent MP from the South, and Makhzoumi, uh, the independent MP from Beirut, the billionaire. These people kind of abstained from voting, they did not aim anyone. You have PSP, Kata'ab, Michel Ma'awad, and Nuhad Mashnu naming Nawaf Slam, who is a Lebanese diplomat, who was seen to be kind of a, a, a candidate that was not accepted by Hezbollah and more like approved by the Americans. All in all, Diab's name had not been like talked about before because he's not a consensus candidate. And it just immediately emerged as he immediately emerged as the top name. And suddenly we had the consultations and, and the, the blocks actually voted for his name so or nominated him. So it was a bit of a shock. And then after that, he announced that actually this is not like, you know, this is not a theatrical thing. He will form a government. And things took a very different path than I expected, to be honest, with him going around and and pushing for a government that can actually be receive some popular approval. Yeah. And I think that we'll uh, we need to dive a lot more into the politics of this. But quickly, though, who the fuck is this guy? Right. Yeah. He's he's a former education minister and no one knows him. Right. Like he's not known at all. He's not a high profile political figure. He's an engineer, was a professor at AUB and the vice president at AUB. 
And if you know anything about AUB and its politics, you know that when you're vice president, you're quite, you know, well connected, and it's not uh, it's not an easy spot to get at all. Um, right. And the salary is extremely high. It's like one of these very very high positions, probably one of the highest pos- paid positions in Lebanon. Although he, because he's like kind of the AUB figure, although he's nominated by March 8 forces, as we were just saying, he was seen to be like the candidate that can appeal to the Americans or not be provocative to the West in general. But let's talk about more fun things that he's, this guy's done, right? He, he was a minister of education and he wrote a couple of books about himself. Uh, dur- and, and about his time during his stint as minister, right? Yeah. And apparently, uh, according to what we know now, he used minist- the ministry's money to publish at least one of these books and it's full of pictures of him like just being in things like being in a meeting and then the captions reading like Hassan Diab listening to I don't know who like a president or a minister saying something like that and it's just full of those pictures so basically the internet the Lebanese internet has been full of memes about Hassan Diab uh, with the captions about himself for the last I don't know how many weeks <laughs> It's been really hilarious. So does that mean that the Ministry of Education then gets the royalties from the sales of those books? Because I'm I sure the sales so. are just like exactly. <laughs> no, I, I think that this is also it, it sort of like gives you a, a taste for who this person is. Right. Instead of just like looking at this dry resume or CV or whatever. Well, actually, if you do look at this guy's CV, well, it's not dry. It is like 135 pages. And he. He really gives you sort of a taste of of who he is, I think. It has a lot of, I guess, flowery language in it. It Just just a few selections. I'll read a couple of selections from his 135-page CV. Indeed, how lovely it is to walk amongst people and emanate the scent of your morals. You know, this is is like high-grade, flowery, I don't really know what he's talking about. I don't know what it means. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I trust that passion is one's autopilot button that will unleash one's true potential. Uh, great stuff. Uh, but, but then I, I think the more fun stuff is when he start, when he talks about himself in his CV, because his CV is just like, it's, in, it's, it's insane. There, there are sections that should not be in CVs in this guy's CV. <laughs> uh, it, and, and clearly... The, the guy thinks quite a bit of himself. Uh, he says, I have been a seeker of truth since my early days. He says, in a very strange, clairvoyant way, I always felt since my early school years that I would be successful in whatever <laughs> I aspire for. Oh, God. Uh, he, he says, uh, I was blessed with an innate sense of wisdom for my early years. Uh, th- th- like this, this guy. Uh, it's actually it, funny. Maybe he's just being a comedian. I don't think Maybe like it's, it, it's, it, it, I mean, this is a lot of commitment to this material. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I would definitely suggest if you're interested in doing this, you should probably just have like a party where everybody does sort of like a dramatic reading of selected passages <laughs> because it actually is kind of entertaining. Uh, Coming back to uh, the politics, you're the numbers guy. Are we late in this process of government cabinet formation? It feels like early? it, right? It feels like it's been going yeah. on forever. And largely that's because it took so goddamn long to designate this guy, right? It took like mm. 51 days just to designate him. As of Monday, when this podcast is dropping, coming out, we have been 83 days without a fully empowered government. And it has been only 32 days, though, since Diab was named. So it's actually kind of early yeah. in the process, right? If you if you look mm. at the sort of the recent history, uh, like basically ever since you go back to, say, the 2005 elections, post then, 32 days isn't too long. 
there there was only one cabinet formation that was Senora in 2005 that was that was shorter than that at 19 days and then you've got 44 days 45 days then 135 days 139 days 252 days and then 315 days mm-hmm. right and so oh you know 32 days that's nothing right <laughs> and and to add on to that Dieff himself sort of like he's put out this timeline of like about six weeks, you know, this 44, 45 days that uh, Senora took in 2008 and Hariri took in 2016 as sort of the goal uh, back on the 20th of December, right after he was named prime minister designate, Diab promised a government within six weeks. So that deadline falls on January 31st, and that would be 43 days since his designation. So sort of like within that, the shorter end of uh, cabinet formations in recent history. Now, another fun thing, speaking of deja vu, though, if he did form it on January 31st, that would be exactly one year since the last cabinet was formed. Fun little coincidence there. So much fun. So much fun. I love all of these numbers. (laughs) But okay, so... So basically, the idea being, though, the point being, like, this is a relatively, we're, we're still relatively early in the process right now. But on the other hand, it seems very strange that it's taking so long, right? Because it's it's a one-sided government. It's a March 8th government. They should be able to figure this out really, really quickly, number one. And then number two, there's a huge fucking financial crisis that we're in the middle of. And there's a huge protest movement, the big uprising that we're in the middle of. So you would think that, you know, this... The, these sort of like outside pressures would lead people, yeah. would lead the politicians to form a government more quickly, right? But it seems as though like, no, the politicians are doing what they always do. They're playing the game as they normally do. And it's just going to take, you know, like we, we can hope for like a short 45-day formation, but maybe not. And when you look at what's stopping the formation according to all like media reports, it's the same old shit of like how many minutes each Zaim will get, right? Because Diab has entered right. this this um, this role saying I will have an 18 member cabinet of experts of basically technocrats and this hasn't happened for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. There's only one other time in independence Lebanon that this has happened. You have to go back to 1960. Saab Salem. He had an 18 member cabinet, and other than that, it's never happened. But to to have this uh, like kind of criterion from the beginning of having a, an experts only cabinet was is not easy because you had many people insisting to have political represent, representatives in the cabinet, uh, especially on the March eighth front and of the on the FPM front. But it kind of he kind of managed to convince these sides apparently with the idea of having an 18 member uh, experts or technocrats technocratic kind of government despite some resistance from especially Hezbollah and Birri uh, in the beginning uh, but these experts are not really like independent or anything because people are demanding independent a government that's independent from the ruling parties it's not the case at all it's no basic. no they're they're like these what they're talking about these experts they're still going to be a part of some zaim share definitely right? I mean, they're either the advisors of ministers or people in ministries that were appointed by specific parties that have allegiance to them. Yeah, and at the end of the day, what are they going to do? They're going to listen to the the Zaim that Definitely. appointed them. That's the whole idea. So, I mean, what, what what is the point with this, though? You can sort of, like, pretend that that's not the case and say, oh, we're doing what the protesters want. We are giving them independent, in quotes, experts. And that, that's one thing that you, you can do. But then also... 
the, this also gives the politicians this sort of plausible deniability if things really go bad if, if things just take a turn for the worse and the country you know really goes to shit or something then they can just discard these nobodies right yeah. these experts they can blame they can the everything guys. on right. them right. and then say oh no no well this is why we need politicians to be in charge because we can actually do things I still don't believe that this will ever be a good argument for them but I understand and I kind of agree with you but I think that it will not work in the future if this happens it's just that uh, they will be they will have full guys not representing the same ministers because people not focusing are focusing on who the politician is so it's very important yeah. that it's not Gibran Basile himself who gets like blamed or Ali Hassan Khalil himself or whoever uh, from any party so that's why they need people who are you know lower profile and uh, without a lot of political ambition like the prime minister himself maybe I mean he does have a lot of ambitions according to his CV but we don't expect (laughs) him to have a lot of political ambitions yeah so uh, like one of the reasons uh, that has been put out there why they haven't been able to get their shit together and get a cabinet together is this idea and we don't know right like this is behind closed doors smoke filled rooms Kaza Kaza. But there's this idea that it's probably over a blocking third for Shibran Basile. Shocking. Which, does that sound familiar to anyone? That was <laughs> the entire point of like the 252 days that we, uh, you know, spent trying to form the last government. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so there, there is sort of like a precedent for this, uh, if, if this is the case. And it seems like it, it, it could be the case. We have reportedly had things where, you know, Frangia reportedly wanting two seats in, instead of just one for his Marda movement. Um, the SSNP reportedly wants a minister. And, and then on the other side, we have uh, Talal Erslan, who is allied with uh, Gibran Basile, trying to claim the industry ministry for himself or, or for his, uh, his party. And then also saying, uh, you know, that there should be a second Druze uh, seat or second seat for the Druze sect. Which, by the way, if you go back to the 1960 government of uh, Sa'ab Salem, well, there actually were two Druze. There was uh, Majid Erslan and Kamal Jumblat in that government. So that was pre tough not exactly comparable, but Arslan does have this historical precedent on his side. But this whole thing shows you kind of how disconnected they are from what people are concerned about and what people want in the streets. Like, I haven't heard anyone talking about the Druze share in cabinet as a serious concern for a pretty <laughs> right, long time because right. no one gives a shit really who who is in cabinet as much as what they will do there especially in this moment of uprising in this moment of high anxiety and crisis so it just shows how the politicians and it's so disappointing to see all of these parties like being s- like such idiots politically by going into these details for the short term we all know that this government if it will last it will last for a short time like the longest it could last is till the next election which is in a couple of years so it's not like you will benefit so much from having one ministry in this doomed cabinet why are you fighting so much for it and you know what what, what are you really getting out of this it's it just shows really that they are in a completely different place than the rest of us who are protesting every day for the basic rights and going to the banks and waiting in long lines etc yeah right exactly and just as weird also i keep coming back to this you know fact that this is you know it's a one-sided government it's a march 8th government future lf psp they've all said we will not participate in this government so it should be really really easy for them to form it even according to like the old rules right but they still aren't able to do that and now we're hearing word of like oh well maybe it won't be 18 members of cabinet maybe it'll be 20 or 24 to sort of like i guess cut all of the sides in that you have to cut in in order to make this you know law <laughs> this government that is not going to last a whole long yeah and then a couple of weeks it will be 30 and then you know we're <laughs> yeah back to right, square right, right. It's, it's it's completely ridiculous 
uh, yeah, so I think that's the wrap for the political stuff, like the cabinet formation stuff. But there was a whole lot of other stuff that went on that, that we need to like bang through really quickly. It, it didn't happen in Lebanon, but it affects Lebanon quite a bit. Uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in Baghdad over the holidays by the U.S. They did it. They claimed it. They said, yep, we, we took him out. And, and that's a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the whole world was talking, was talking about it. It was not like uh, a local thing in any sense. It created this whole panic about World War Three, etc. And uh, in Lebanon as well, people were worried that this means that, okay, um, in addition to all the misery we're currently living in, we will be going into an, an, a, a war, a major regional war. And it was a shock to, to most people. It was, uh, it was not something that was expected or anything. Uh, and Hezbollah grabbed the opportunity uh, very well and it used it to mobilize in a way that it couldn't mobilize before during this time of uprising, popular uprising, uh, with a lot of billboards. It's just incredible how many billboards and photos and how many broadcasts on TV and radio they've been making about Qasem Soleimani. And Nasrallah himself made like a big speech in which he kind of, he did what Bush did in 2001, if you remember when he said, you're either with us or against us, you know, you're either with us or with the terrorists. It was an opportunity for Hezbollah to say, if you're with the axis of resistance, you know, you're on the right side of history. If you're not, then you are with the imperialists and the Americans and the Zionists, etc. And any third kind of uh, way or any other positioning is either that you are ignorant and confused or that you are waiting to see which one will win and join that side. So an opportunist. So basically Nasrallah was kind of re-establishing the political identity of his large circle of support, especially when we're talking about a speech that a lot of people were listening to, right? Because they want to know whether Nasrallah will actually say that Hezbollah will respond from Lebanon. This was the biggest concern. So his main purpose out of, out of the speech was to reestablish this identity as, you know, the axis of resistance and that, you know, affiliation to Hezbollah and allegiance to Hezbollah is much more, much bigger than a local issue, uh, etc. Uh, the real concern, as I was saying, was whether Hezbollah would respond. And he made it clear indirectly that it will not by saying that the, the real retaliation to this, uh, to the attack and the assassination on, of Soleimani should be by kicking out all U.S. troops out of this region, out of the Arab MENA region. And this meant that Lebanon doesn't have a big role to play in this because we don't have any U.S. army bases in Lebanon. But we did in Iraq um, because it was just just before the Iraqi parliament passed the law to uh, kick the, the U.S. troops out of Iraq. And we do have in all of these Gulf countries. So he's saying that this is a regional battle, but he also kind of assured us, reassured us that it's not going to happen now in Lebanon. That we're not going to have a war with Israel or whatever. And the Iranian retaliation came soon after with attacks on the U.S. army bases in Iraq. And they said that this was it. This is our retaliation. That made everyone here, you know, say okay great we don't we won't have a regional war so it's more or less kind of this big concern that took over we were relieved of this concern quite uh, quickly after yeah and, and can i just uh, make one tiny comment on this and that is that nasrallah in in doing this and saying like oh no no we are not going to attack civilians we are going to you know our our aim is to eject the u.s military from the middle east in doing that he seems very reasonable very statesmanlike I think he did a very good job and he's very, very good at, at doing this thing where he he is the rational actor. He is the bigger man in the room, especially when it's up against like him versus Donald Trump. 
or something. You mm-hmm. know, uh, he looks very, very good in comparison. He looks very rational. He looks very level-headed and, and very fair as opposed to... And he did US. say something like, no attacks on civilians are acceptable and we will only target... Uh, I mean, not we. he said like, it's only that the U.S. Army that should be targeted or kicked out. We're not talking about U.S. civilians. So he was pretty clear so that no one interprets the speech as saying, you know, he wants to kill all the Americans in the region or whatever. Right, right, right. So the well-crafted speech. Right, right, right. Also, we, we had a, just a few days earlier than that, we had uh, somebody kind of famous pop up here in Lebanon, Carlos Rosen, who is of Lebanese descent. The pride of the nation. Yes, yes. He popped up in Lebanon on December 30th uh, after fleeing Japan, uh, where he's charged with uh, financial malfeasance uh, while he was uh, the head of Nissan. Lots of great reporting on this has happened. You know, it's just like this fascinating spy thriller almost, you know, how he got out of Japan and escaped the security and all this stuff. But there's one thing that I just want to like pick out once they get to Lebanon. There's, at least in some of the international reporting, there's this sort of like line about like how Hossin is like this very popular figure here, well-respected and beloved. Uh, yeah, maybe. Like, he was a Lebanese guy who went to a, a, a achieve astounding success. And and so there is that. I, I don't know really the, the depth of that, though. And now, especially, that he is on trial for corruption in Japan, and he has skipped bail. <laughs> yeah. it, it looks absolutely terrible. It, it Right now, we're in a moment here in Lebanon where... Everybody is rising up against a bunch of corrupt businessmen who have been running the country for the past 30 years, fabulously wealthy people. And now this guy comes who is credibly accused of corruption. He pops up and I, my sense of all of this is that he may not be quite so just blindly beloved as some of these reports make him out to be here in Lebanon. I mean, yeah, what are these reports based on anyway? Are they based on like uh, on, one on Twitter trend or like a couple of billboards that... On the billboards, I'm sure, that, yeah. Yeah, we are all Carlos Rosen, the stupid campaign that uh, sponsored by very wealthy and very high people in our state or whatever, uh, like trying to endorse this figure. But what he actually represents is something that people are revolting against, as you're saying, so... Yeah, well, yeah. Try yeah. Again, and it, uh, it's very clear that he has, you know, some ties to the elite here. It, it it seems to me as though like he is basically the problem that everybody is revolting against. Yeah. Um, and so he 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 may have come back to a friendly jurisdiction where you know justice can be bought in a lot of cases. But as as far as the sentiments of the people, I I I would take strong issue with this idea that he's like some sort of like beloved favored son of the country or anything. Yeah, I mean you're totally right and. He wouldn't have arrived in Lebanon if uh, if not for a very meticulous uh, conspiracy, right? I mean, this is, doesn't happen like a like it's not a normal process to escape from Japan to go through Turkey and come to Lebanon without your passports because they're with your lawyers and right. everything is working smoothly, and then you arrive in Lebanon and no one is is prosecuting you. It's 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 a whole story that happened with the consent, obviously, of people in very high positions because it risks diplomatic relations between Lebanon and, and another country. So we all, we all know there are big heads involved in this operation and nothing is done for free in this country. Yeah. 
quick update on the financial situation. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday. As of as of today, Saturday, uh, the lira was trading at around 2250 to the US dollar. Um, this is according to LebaneseLira.org. Now, earlier in the week, the exchange rate flirted with about 2500 which it, it, it is a big number, right? That's sort of, to go back to history, like that's sort of getting into crisis of 1992 territory when the lira hit its lowest value ever according to bdl in september of 1992 the lira averaged 2420 uh, according to other sources you know like the, the average is one thing but it spiked up above that uh, up above 2800 that month according to uh semi barudi an academic and so we're we, we are getting to the level basically where the lira is sort of at these 1992 levels like peak crisis levels all right, so I just want to put these numbers in perspective really quickly. Uh, for those of you who maybe don't have Lira bank accounts that are affected by this, <laughs> your savings maybe is in dollars or not in the country. L let's say you have 30 million Lebanese Lira in the bank. For the past 22 years, that has meant you've got about $20,000, all right? That's at the, the peg 1,500 to one. But once you get up to 2,000, you only have $15,000. That's 25 percent less. You just lost 5,000 of your $20,000, right? At the current rate, 2250 to one, then you have just 13,330. That's a 33% decline in whatever your savings is. And then at 2,500 to one, what we had last Monday, you have just $12,000. That's a 40% drop. So imagine these people with their life savings is now, you know, a third less than what it used to be or 40% less. Yeah, I'm not sure what kind of a friend you are because I just told you before you started recording that all my savings are in Lebanese pounds. <laughs> and you now you go into this whole description of how much I've lost, like 40%. I know that, man. It's painful. Just stop talking about it. Let's I'm go. Sorry. Let's I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just it's just very painful to say the least. And I'm glad I'm not like 70 and not able to work anymore. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, also, banks are uh, still putting severe limits on withdrawals, uh, both in dollars and lira. Um, and despite this, there appears to be just like this continuing run on the banks. Like people keep going to the banks, keep going to the ATMs, withdrawing as much as possible, you know, every day or every week or however uh, often they can. Yeah, it's usually $200 or something around that per week from your USD accounts. And each bank has a different rule. Like sometimes you can't get anything off the counter. You have to go to the ATM. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. So you, you might wait for two hours and then get to the desk and they say, oh, no more dollars for today. Yeah, it's quite uh, it's quite chaotic and very, very it's long infuriating. Yeah. It takes a whole lot of time. I, I know this because I I took my money out of Bank Med, my Lira cash out of Bank Bank Med recently. And it's just, it was just, you know, it, was, it took me basically a month to do it. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And so there's like definitely this, uh, I guess, rising tide of frustration against the banks for multiple reasons. But th this, is, this is one of them, right? The, the banks are not doing their job. You can't get the money that is your money. And so what's going on? Yeah, I mean, uh, I tweeted a while back that they are now Lebanon's, like the public enemy number one in Lebanon. I'm, I'm, I'm quite convinced that it's the case. It's basically the, the, the side that everyone hates, even like people who usually have no problem with the banks because they have a lot of money. If not, they're not able to, you know, get exceptions and uh, move some money out of the country now or withdraw a lot of cash. They also hate the banks. So it's basically a whole lot of frustration, as you're saying. And we've, we're seeing it in the kind of protests 
recently the, the, the nature or the direction that the protests are taking before the end of last year uh, we had some protests like since our last episodes we had some protests but they were not very active before the new year on new year's eve obviously we had a big celebration by the way 2019 saw like a very 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 large number of of, of uh, collective actions according to the civil society knowledge center which maps all collective actions that happen in the country we had 2,107 collective actions in 2019. That's 12 times more than the year before. And we're uh, talking about only three months where the uprising was happening, right? Because it started in October. So it was a big, big like phenomenon. This uprising that we see is just confirmed now with data and numbers. And um, road blockades were, turned out to be the most popular form of action with over 1,000 collective actions taking that form. Anyway, to go back to, to kind of the banks, there's been more and more directed actions against, you know, this public enemy number one. And uh, we saw some serious escalations um, last week with a protest on Tuesday at the central bank. Basically, a lot of people have been protesting at the central bank since the beginning of the uprising because they see that, you know, the, the, the role of the central bank and its alliance with the commercial banks in Lebanon has been very counterproductive to the economy and to the middle and poor classes in the country. But they it's were... been great for the bank owners who also happen to be tied to politicians. Yeah. So it's basically a, a protest that has been going for a, uh, going on for a long while, but there's more interest in focusing on that now among many groups and organizations. And uh, on Tuesday, so there was a protest at the central bank. One of the protesters kind of tried to climb into this, like, I don't know, beyond the siege or whatever you call it. And then police attacked him very violently. And then police started attacking protesters. And then, as usual, all of the tear gas, the military grade, very suffocating, very annoying tear gas that they use. The same shit that they use in downtown. They used in Hamra. They were following protesters through the, the street. So protesters were taking, like, kind of retaliating by destroying the facades of the banks in the street. So they were not touching any other shops, to be very clear. It was not a riot. In riots, you see, like, anything broken and people, like, looting and, like, stealing things from shops. This was not happening. People just destroyed the, the glasses, the, the kind of the ATM machines and the facades of the banks. And they used... In order to do that, they use the signs of, you know, the public signs, like, yeah, you can't park here. Whatever. So it's, it's basically symbolic. It's ironic that, you know, they use the state uh, property to destroy the, the, the oligarchs, yeah. the private oligarchs property. But it was not a real uh, riot that could, you know, threaten um, to go into uh, to, to lead to any kind of civil strife or chaos or anything. But still, police was uh, reacted in an extremely aggressive way, uh, like with a very heavy hand. At least 53 people that night were arrested and most of them, only four were released and the rest were kept overnight. Uh, by arrested, I mean detained. I mean, I don't know how many of them had charges from the, from the public prosecutor. But anyway, they were kept in jail in the police station overnight. And then the next time, uh, uh, actually before that, during the arrest in Hamra, the police even went into a cafe that is known to be pro-revolution and they arrested the workers there and the workers have nothing to do with they are foreign workers and they were just working and they have nothing to do with the protests or the riots against the banks but now they're referring them to the general security and they have charges because of their obviously residence status or whatever their papers ridiculous very ridiculous so the next day we had a major protest in second hello major police station and uh, some protesters when they were marching here they also kind of destroyed some atm machines and and facades uh, for of banks and it was quite calm f for the first couple of hours but then as expected 
same thing happens. People start throwing, you know, uh, water bottles and things like that, sometimes fireworks. And then police at a certain point makes a decision to go in with a heavy hand. And that's what they did. They attacked and then they, they arrested more than 16 people, beating them up while arresting them. This is all recorded on video. Like, I don't even need to say allegedly. Like, we saw all of this and I was down there anyway. I was seeing it. Right. Um, one person was hit on the back of her head. She has temporary memory loss and sight loss as well. Um, she's in a very, like, critical condition. Many people were injured because of the very aggressive way, including the press. Uh, police attacked the press violently, including, like, local press and international press. So it, they were completely completely out of control just absolutely you know just things that are not acceptable under any circumstances and we had the same old story of like you know back and forth between protesters and the police a lot of tear gas for the rest of the night and then we had statements from uh, both the head of the internal security forces general Ahmad Uthman and Rayal Hassan our uh, caretaking interior minister and both statements were basically saying the same thing like you should excuse the policemen there's under so much pressure and they're subjected to a lot of violence although the the attacks on the media are not justifiable but people are the infiltrators among the protesters are causing all of this and and Uthman went on this like mathematical thing where he's basically saying we have 1000 troops in the riot police since the beginning of the uprising we've had almost 500 so around 450 injuries among these po- this police force so now a third of the police force of the riot police force is injured yeah no it's not that, uh, that that's not how it no. works <laughs> first of all injuries do not last three months unless they're very you know quite severe second of all they might be the same people who get injured and in any case like that's like just an exaggeration to say, say that you know right police is under such a grave physical damage yeah, how what? can we expect them to behave responsibly and professionally you know like no it's their job to do this yeah it, it doesn't matter like that's the whole point of security forces they're supposed to be trained so that they can handle the pressures i mean and they, and they are so protected from what? From fireworks and rocks? I mean, they have full masks. They have even like gas masks. Masks. They have these shields that they carry all the time with the with the stick, and they have like a little armor on their body. Like, what else do you need for for the very basic yep. uh, kind of white weapons that um, that the protesters are using? Water bottles and rocks and and stuff like that and fireworks. So it's uh, it's just like yeah, putting them as the victim. The right police is the victim when they're clearly extremely ag- aggressive and disproportionate in their response it, to it is interesting though that this aggression comes out when it's the banks that are being attacked yeah yeah that's the most important point like it's just so painful for the ruling elite to 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 see the banks being attacked like the icon of the bank and then the symbolism of the bank and, and the interest that they have in the banking sector they don't want to be, give people the green light to go ver- further with these attacks because they can't accept that the banks are prone to such, you know. Right, right, right. Such right. humiliation. Although, you know, you know, if you just experience any of the humiliation that the everyone in Lebanon is experiencing with the banks, you would say this is the least, like, <laughs> the least yeah. possible acceptable, acceptable damage that the banks can handle. Like, how much does it cost to repair your uh, whatever facade? Like, $10,000? You're, you're causing much more... Um, much bigger problems, much bigger impact on the Lebanese economy and people's livelihoods every single day. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention these banks like regularly redo their facades, you know, every few years, like a new design for the <laughs> bank, new logo and everything. So it's like, <laughs> and that's like across the country. So like a few branches, that's not a lot. Yeah, but Drop still in the bucket it's for kind of, it's, it's something that has divided public opinion. Not everyone agrees that, you know, we should endorse right. these attacks. Yeah. 
I mean, in the Hamra incident, we had the, uh, the, the, the factor of, apart from the violence itself, we had the factor of Hezbollah and Amal supporters being there and talking to TV and saying, you know, we're, uh, we support Birri and Nasrallah. That happened, but these were not really the protesters who were destroying the, the banks or anything. They were just a, couple, a few people who were there to attack protesters, the media, and uh, maybe to attack some public, public property. But it doesn't, like, they were not the people who did those bank riots. But some people like, quickly kind of slid into this judgment of like saying these all of these people are Hezbollah and Amal people. They are the thugs. They are not the real rebels because the real rebels will never do this. And with all the kind of classist undertones of this rhetoric of, you know, the, the rebels are much more are more, you know, civil or civilized or whatever the word they use is. Yeah. Too, too, too civilized to do this and uh, they don't cover their faces. Oh, yes, they do. I mean. People who were destroying the banks were, have, are people who have been protesting uh, and part of groups that have been protesting since day one of the uprising. They're not like newcomers or anything, and they're not some infiltrators. It's just se- serious uh, anger against the banks, and it's quite political. It's a very directed action to say, okay, I'm going to destroy this bank, and I'm not going to touch the shop next to it. Yeah, yeah. And and one that I think has uh, carries quite a bit of popular support. Yes, you do have these people who are saying, no, 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 we don't want to do that. They're not the true rebels or infiltrators, all that stuff. But then you have like the person who tried to go to the bank to withdraw some money or to find out why the, the bank isn't servicing some loan or something like that and got shot down earlier that day. I bet that they sympathize when that bank gets smashed up. I mean, it, it brings us back to the question of like, what is violence, right? If someone says, okay, now I control your money, I'm not going to give you any of it. Is this violence or not? I mean, yeah, he's not beating you up, but still, he's controlling your livelihood. So who protects people against this violence? No, I'm not saying that violence should be responded to with violence, but I'm saying the, the, the standard of what is uh, something that is a violent action or an aggression is, is not always, always so consistent uh, morally. And also politically, I mean, the banks are the oligarchs in this country, right? They control, they have controlled economic policy. They have stopped the state from making any progressive economic policy at any moment by their various tools until very recently when now they're just trying to make sure that they don't collapse as a sector, right? But you remember in 2014 when people were demanding ranks and salary scale, like salary increase for public sector workers and teachers. The banks went, went on strike because the government was going to increase in the budget, was going to increase the tax on the profits from interest rates on bank deposits from 5 to 7% already extremely low, right? From yeah. 5 to 7%. This 2% made them go on strike and they like basically stopped the whole country um, from like having their normal economic activity. And then later on, when do you remember, if you remember the beginning of last year, when Ali Hassan Khalil said, yeah, we're considering debt restructuring, they made him basically make a speech and say it's off the table. Right, right. They're basically preventing anything that we need to have in terms of policy from happening. And they are very connected. And according to many studies, and we know this, we know the shares, we know who is a member on which board, they are very connected to the political elite. So... It's a very valid political target. The battle against the political elite and the banks is not really two. It's one battle. Right. And and to add on to that, this is the sector that has been making billions of dollars in profits throughout these past years, while the rest of the country has been not doing nearly so well. I, I, I want to say in 2018, the banking sector overall made something along the lines of $2.4 billion. 
and yeah. profits, which is right there. That should tell you, wait, how does the financial sector make money when the rest of the economy isn't? We should have known back then, right, that there was something very, very wrong with things. Yeah. But it worked to the banker's advantage. It worked to the political, the elite class's advantage. And now they've lost that advantage because this financial model that they were using has been revealed to be bullshit. And, and they're sort of circling the wagons and saying, oh, no, no, well, we need to protect what we have. Uh, we need to make sure that, you know, we can sort of like ride this out. We'll give people $100 or $200 a, a week or something, and they'll we can just force them to live off that for right now. Meanwhile, if somebody gets frustrated and, and smashes up our bank, we will not stand for that. Yeah, I mean, when the when the banks are arbitrarily imposing these cont- capital controls, extremely regressive capital controls, cl- like causing like businesses to close down, people to come back from where they're studying abroad because their parents can't like move money abroad to, for their tuition, all of this mess happening, people not surviving, not being able to afford their basic needs, and then the state doing nothing about it, and the central governor, the central bank governor saying, I can't do anything. It should be a, a law from parliament to 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 impose official capital controls. And basically, parliamentarians are not doing anything about it. So when it's time, it's the time of normal capital accumulation, they're happy. And then when the crisis comes, they can do whatever they want with us and the state will not protect us. If, if, if the, your state is not protecting you in a time like this, who will protect you? You have to fight back in a way or another. It's not a question of like what tactic you use. If it's like you can't boycott the banks, that's not a tool you can use because your money is there. So if you boycott them, they're just confiscating more of your money. So you need to do something to kind of hurt them in a way. And this is the the most obvious kind of reaction or retaliation. Yeah. And, and if you're one of these rulers, what do you do? Ex- just expect like nothing to happen? Do, yeah. do you do you really expect that? Oh, oh well, well our, the politicians aren't going to do anything. The bankers aren't going to do anything. Nobody's going to do a goddamn thing. And we're just going to expect everybody to. Just just sit back and take it and not get angry. <laughs> That's really stupid. <laughs> that, that is unbelievably stupid to think that. Yeah, and one last thing is basically it sets the conflict the way it should be, like between people and the and the oligarchs. It's 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 basically filling a vacuum that could be exploited by right-wing people to mobilize people against each other to cause division, further divisions in, in Lebanese society along sectarian or more importantly. I don't know what you call it, national lines, um, scapegoating of regi- refugees and migrants, which we have been seeing very explicitly in the last two years. So it is progressive in a sense to uh, reorient the conflict um, between the, gen- the, like the people in general, the 99% and the 1%, then make room for all of this discourse that might come up fueled and, and sponsored by the oligarchs themselves to, f- to incite people against each other. So in a sense, yeah. Uh, it's 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 going in it's taking us in the right direction in my opinion even if if a lot of people disagree on the tactics it shouldn't be really questioned neither morally nor strategically uh, that this is this is at least not bad at least it's not counterproductive it's just a bit of you know deterrence a bit of of, of a balance of of power between right. us and the banks right i mean, i i think that we're in for a wild ride this year man yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exciting. I mean, it's it's very dark. It's it seems bleak with with no horizons for like improvements. But we don't know what's gonna happen, right? We don't know if this government actually will be cre- formed or not. We will. We might even see early elections. Namat Frem, 
Former FPM MP is talking about early elections now uh, because the government will not represent people's interests or the revolution. So we'll see. Anything can happen this year. But yeah, we're off to a, to an interesting start. All right. Season three, 2020. Here we come. <laughs> Yay. All right. Uh, and we will be back uh, with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.